Welcome to Cigar Harvest Church as we are beginning a brand new series called The Scarlet Thread. I am glad that you're here today. As we continue, there may be some folks looking for a seat. If they walk past you and you have one near you, you might scoot over and try to make one available for them. I, uh, we're going to be talking about something really, really cool. But if you're like me, the Old Testament at times can seem so, well, so old. I mean, it's written thousands of years ago in many cases, and technology had only advanced to the point where people were throwing rocks. You know, there was just not a lot going on when it began, and they didn't have tablets. In fact, in a lot of it, they didn't even have tables. And so we're looking at something so old and saying, how, what does that mean to me today? And then some of it, you know, we think about what was going on then and what's going on today. And I mean, we could drive 900 miles in one single day, and that's not really even that big of a deal. And they perhaps then in their whole lifetime may not have moved or, or, or gone more than 50 miles from their home. It's so different than today. And on top of that, it's kind of difficult to read sometimes, the Old Testament. You can get lost in the details. It seems to skip around. The oldest book that we're aware of, the, the one that was written first, doesn't even appear in the Bible until like the 18th book. And so it can get a little confusing. It seems like in the Old Testament, God has one personality, in the New Testament, a different personality. It seems sometimes that like in the Old Testament, it's all about the law, but yet the New Testament is all about Jesus. It's just so different. It's hard to focus on one thing. It's hard to focus on the teaching style, the topics. And sometimes you just have to say, this just doesn't make sense to me. Help, it doesn't make sense. Maybe you have felt that way. I have felt that way before until I kind of realized, while the Bible is made up of 66 books written by over four different, 40 different people over the course of thousands of years, it tells one giant story. It all points to one thing. The entire Bible, every single book points to God's plan to save His creation from themselves because His creation chose to rebel against God, and God knew it was coming. And every book of the Bible tells part of that story. Every book of the Bible gives us a glimpse of God's plan for His creation and to redeem you, His creation. Every book tells part of that story. And you know, the scarlet, that's the, the color of this series, the scarlet thread. The scarlet color, it reminds us of what Jesus did for us. So this series... It's called the scarlet thread because God has masterfully woven this scarlet thread, this story of Jesus throughout the entire Bible, and it is found in every single book of the Bible, this scarlet thread. And we're going to take you in this series on a journey to help you discover Jesus in the Old Testament and how God has woven the story of Jesus into the Old Testament. Now, we obviously don't have time to take you through every single book in the Old Testament, but it's there. But because of time, we have chosen five different places to look in the Old Testament, to visit, just to visit, to show you God's plan for Jesus revealed thousands of years before Jesus ever stepped foot onto this planet 
There's no better place for us to start today with this series than at the beginning. And it was Moses who God told to write this stuff down about how it all began, creation and Genesis, the beginning. Now, we only know personally our experience with creation and in this world that God has created. Everything we know has happened after this story that I'm going to tell you today. That's all we know is this side of the creation story. We don't know from experience the side that we're talking about today. We just know this other side. Let's just jump right in and begin our journey for today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So everything has been created, and now we pick up with God uh, having Moses write down this this whole thing with Adam and Eve and how it all got started here. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest. Now I'm going to pause on that word shrewd. What it's saying there, this created being was the wisest, the most prudent, full of wisdom. And he's called here a created being. Here, listen to this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals. And to understand what it's saying, wild animals, not talking about a zoo, really. Talking about of all things that had been created, this particular one was the wisest of the created beings. Of Of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, let's talk for just a moment about that word serpent. Because we have a very specific image when we think of the word serpent, we think of a very narrow slice of what it's talking about here. The word in the Hebrew kind of opens it up. So let's broaden, let's, make, let's, let's widen our understanding of this. The word serpent, we know this is the evil one. We know this is Satan. And this is the the word used here is the very same root word where we get the the word to describe hiss, we get the word to describe muttering, we get the word to describe whispering, we get the word to describe an enchanter. It's also a root word that that is talking about being bright and shining. So this is broadening our understanding of this term. It's also the word that that describes fiery brass or fiery copper. So you get the idea of a burning one. You get the idea of a shining one, one that's hissing, muttering, the one that's chattering, one that's enchanting. And they've chosen here to describe it with the word serpent. Many scholars use the phrase the shining one to describe this created being here. We're going to go with this English translation of the word serpent. One day, this serpent, as the Bible says here in Genesis, one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? So here at the very beginning, the evil one has introduced for the first time here, we see doubt. And he did it here first, but he continues to do it with you and with me every single day. It's like, you know, if if there is a God, can you really trust him? I mean, could, can you trust him? He's introducing doubt. And now let's go to verse 2. And she answers him, Of course we may eat from the trees of the garden, she says. Verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. 
God said, now she's quoting God, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, it's important for us to understand, she misquoted God. That's not what God said. She has added to what God said. She added her own words, do not touch it. God never said that. He said, just don't eat from that tree. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. And she's adding to what God said. So first the evil one introduces doubt, and then she comes back and adds adds things to what God said. And verse 4, the evil one replies, oh, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. And now, first he added doubt, she added stuff to what God said, and now the evil one is directly, directly contradicting what God said. He's saying the opposite, because God said you would die, and now the evil one's saying, you're not going to die. That's not what he meant, that's not what he said. And here's the problem, it's called biblical uh, illiteracy. Because, and, and in her case, all she had to know was just what God said. It was just a little, very big. God didn't give them a big list of rules. He, he gave them just, just this. And she misquoted that. And now she's doubting that, well, maybe that's not what God said. And she didn't have much. So just think about it. We have God's entire scripture. And people can tell you all day long, every day, they can say, well, this is in the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. And guess what? It may not be in there. Or they may be adding to it what they think, like Eve did. Or they may be just contradicting it and saying it wrong. Or they may be causing doubt. But you don't know if you're not in the Word. In fact, the test of what I say is not how good it comes out or not how much you understand it. The test of what I say is, is it really in there? And it is for you to go and make sure. And here we have some Bible... God's word, illiteracy, the evil one is causing her to doubt, to misunderstand. And he says, you're not going to die. You won't die. He said, if you do this, you're going to be like God. And that's what God doesn't want. He doesn't want you to be like, you're not going to die. God said you would die. But no, you're not going to die is what the evil one's saying. In fact, he's saying you can become like God. In fact, you don't really, listen, lady, you don't need God. You can do this on your own. You can figure this out. You can work this out. You can make it happen. If you just do this the way I'm telling you to do it, you're going to be okay. You don't need God to live. You don't need God to survive. You will be fine on your own. He says in verse 5, God knows that your eyes are going to be opened. As soon as you eat it, you're going to be like God, knowing both good and evil. And that's all she needed to hear. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. It was fruit looked delicious like McDonald's, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. That's what happened right there. Now, this poses an interesting question. Where was Adam when this was going on? He wasn't there. He wasn't part of this. He wasn't there. Eve was there. Adam, he wasn't there at this moment, and he comes up on the scene, and then here's how it continues. Then she gave some to her husband. He had meandered up. He was there. He was there with her, and he ate it too. Now, maybe, now that Adam here is on the scene, 
Maybe you didn't know this, what I'm getting ready to tell you, but it is in God's Word. I'm going to show you where it is. I'm going to help you understand this picture because Adam was a real man. He actually lived. He was around. God created him. And and I'm not trying to convince you of that. Let me just tell you why I believe that. I believe that because Jesus taught about Adam as if Adam were a real person. And if Jesus believed it, the guy who predicted his own death, died on the cross, and predicted that he would walk again, walk out of the tomb, and he pulled it off, I'm going to kind of go with him, what he believes. If he believed it was real, I'm going to believe it was real. So we have Adam, real man, but God uses him and his life as a picture for you and for me. This is interesting. The Bible tells us that Adam... This Adam is a picture of what is to come in the life of Jesus. In fact, Adam here is called the first Adam. He's described as the first Adam. And this first Adam brought disaster to his life, to this creation, and to us. But then the Bible talks about a second Adam. You may not have known this, a first Adam, but it talks about a second Adam. I'm going to show you where it is. But this second Adam, I'm going to tell you who it is. The second Adam is Christ. It's Jesus. The first Adam came and brought destruction. The second Adam showed up on the scene to fix everything the first Adam messed up. It's pictured for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Listen to this. I'm going to skip down. It starts out, I'm going to go through this part. Still everyone died from the beginning of time, Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey the explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, here's here's where this picture is. Now, Adam, this is Paul speaking, God giving him this information. He's writing it down. Now, Adam is a symbol a representation of who? Christ. Adam is a representation of Christ who was yet to come. So all the way back in Genesis and where we are right now, Genesis chapter 3, God is saying Adam is a picture of what is to come in the life of Jesus. The first Adam is this Adam in Genesis chapter 3, but he's pointing towards what's going to happen. He's a picture of the the second Adam, who is Jesus. First Adam, right here, Adam. The second Adam is Jesus. So here we go. Let's, Let's listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. The scripture tells us the first man, Adam, who's the first Adam, became a living person. He was a creation of God. But the last Adam... Who's that? Jesus. The last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. So do you see? God is saying, the first Adam really existed, really messed up, really blew it, but it's a picture of what's getting ready to come, all the way from here in Genesis, a picture to all the way into the New Testament, the second Adam, which is Jesus. So, Let's, we're going to keep visiting that as we move through this. The Bible tells us that Eve was actually deceived. Face to face with the evil one, Eve was deceived. But guess what? Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he did what he did. When he took that fruit and he ate that fruit, he knew exactly what he was doing. Here, listen to how this is pictured again by Paul. 
now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived. In other words, he's saying Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't deceived by Satan. Why? Because Adam wasn't there at that time, at that moment. The, Paul says the woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But he said, Adam, he chose to sin. I mean, he knew what he was doing. When he took that fruit, he knew what he was doing. So get this in your mind. Here's how this plays out. Adam had not yet sinned. And he comes strolling up in the garden, and there's Eve, his wife, Eve. And as he strolls up, he discovers something is different. He can see it and sense it and feel it. Something is different because Eve has already sinned. He senses something is different. He sees that something has changed. She hands him the fruit. And knowing that she now is different for eternity. And if he chooses to do what she did, he too is going to be different for eternity. Just get this idea, because I want to remind you, Adam is a picture of who? Jesus. Okay? That's what Romans said. That's what God says. Adam, this first Adam is a picture of the second Adam, which is Jesus. So Adam is a picture of of Jesus. Now let's look at this picture. Adam walks up on Eve, sees that something is different. Something has eternally changed for the worse. And loving her so much, Adam reaches out knowing full well what he is about to do is going to change his destiny, his life forever. Loving Eve so much, knowing that her life has been changed. It's as if Adam is saying, I don't want to leave you in this state alone. I know what I'm getting ready to do. I'm going to ruin it for myself, but I love you so much. I'm going to join you in this state. Now, I'm not trying to make a hero out of Adam because Adam blew it. But I want you to understand because God is telling us that Adam is a picture of Jesus. He was really there. Adam was really there, but he's also really a picture of what's to come. And loving Eve so much, he chose to take that death and join her in that death as he ate that fruit. Adam was not deceived. He chose, full well knowing what was happening, he chose to do that. Now look at the picture. Adam is a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus had not sinned, never sinned. And he walks into this earth because he loves you and me so much that he chose to take death upon himself so that he could be with you forever. 
the first Adam is a picture of what was to come and the second Adam, Jesus. Do you see the picture? God paints it for us right here. Jesus and God's plan. This was God's plan from the beginning. The beginning of time, we find Jesus all the way back here at creation. The plan of God using Jesus to save his creation all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3. Have you ever seen that before? It's there, and God placed it there for you. It's that scarlet thread showing up right there. Wow. Amazing. Verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Everything was changed. In fact, when they suddenly realized their nakedness, what that's implying is that before that moment, it's not that they didn't realize they were naked, it's that they had some kind of covering, God-provided covering. I mean, we don't know if it was like a brilliant light or they had just the brilliance of God glowing all around them. They had some kind of presence. And when they sinned, that presence vanished. It was gone. And they look and they're like, I, I'm not the same. I ain't got the clothes on. <laughs> Something's different. I mean, that brilliance, whatever it was that was covering my life is gone. They realized it, and they was like, okay, okay, I, I can fix this. And the Bible says, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. I, I can go to work. I can make this better. I know it's not what it was, but at least it's not what it is. I can do something to make this better. Maybe God won't notice that his brilliance is gone out of my life. Maybe he won't notice. So they go to work, and they try to make it better. Verse 8, When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They heard God, and they hid they were like, I, I can't let him see me like this. Do you think God was shocked? Do you think he was surprised? From the beginning of time, the first Adam was pointing to the second Adam. The first Adam, from the very beginning of time, we're already told, was pointing, the first Adam points to who? To Jesus. Would there be a need for Jesus? God already knew. He was not surprised. He was not shocked. He knew. So God is just kind of playing along, giving them opportunity here. So they hid from God. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? This is interesting to note that God... God always does the seeking. People don't just stumble upon God. He always seeks 
them out. It's kind of like the shepherd, you know, God's described as the shepherd, right? Jesus, the good shepherd. And the shepherd always, in the Bible, seeks after and calls his sheep. No sheep ever just kind of wanders up to and stumbles upon the shepherd. No, the shepherd in the Bible is always seeking after his sheep, calling after his sheep. And this is no different. God is seeking, calling after Adam right here. And Adam replied in verse 10, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Verse 11, who, who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? God knew. He's just giving Adam an opportunity here to fess up Verse 12, the man replied, I did, I ate it, I ate it all, and it was good. Well, I'm sorry, that's a different translation. He said, no, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. I was doing okay. I, I didn't need a woman. I, it's, it's her fault. God looks at the woman. Verse 13, what, what have you done? It's the serpent. It's his fault. He deceived me. That's why I ate it. Verse 14, listen to what happens here. Now God turns to this serpent, this shining one the wisest of all the creation of God. Listen to what happens. Shining, brilliant. This brilliant, shining star of a, of a creation who is so proud and so arrogant. God looks at this created being, this shining one, and he says this. To the serpent. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic or wild. In other words, more than anything I have created, you will be the most cursed. He said, You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Do you know what God is saying? To this arrogant, shining one. He's saying, in my presence, you will be humiliated for eternity. You will be humbled, you arrogant, shining one. You proud, arrogant serpent. You snake. You will be humiliated for eternity. You will cower before me and crawl before me for eternity. And then God declares war on the evil one. Listen to how he describes this war. Very interesting. Verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Some translations say between uh, her seed and your seed. 
He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now let me unpack that for you. Listen to the picture. God is describing a great war, a spiritual war. He's saying, evil one, you and your offspring, your forces, there's going to be hate between you and between God. The battle is going to, we're going to see it in, in, in the offspring of Eve. And I want to use this word in some of the other translations. It says the seed of the woman. And, and, and in the Bible, we never hear from the woman's perspective as the seed of a woman. Because in, like, in plant life and, and things like that, you understand there's the seed and there's like the egg. In the animal kingdom, we have the seed, we have the egg. The egg belongs to the woman, the seed belongs to the man. And so when you hear this described in the Bible, it's always referring to the seed of the man. But here God says, interestingly enough, the seed of the woman. Listen to the picture that here in Genesis chapter 3 that God is painting by using the seed of the woman, something that was not referred to, here's what he's saying. In the future, there's going to be this great war between the evil one and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman referring to a virgin birth. And in all of history, there has been one. And her name was what? Mary. And her birth day boy was named Jesus, the seed of the woman. And here he paints the picture of that war. He says, you're going to strike your venom. The best you're going to do is strike his heel, but you're going to think that you have killed him. You're going to think that he is dead and he is yours and he's gone, but he is going to come back and crush your head. Do you see in Genesis chapter 3, God is painting the picture of what's going to happen with Jesus. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. And in fact, we're told about this seed of the woman, this virgin birth in Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah writes, all right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, here's the sign. The virgin will conceive a child. The virgin will conceive a child. The seed of a woman. The virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the seed of the woman. Wow. Again, let's listen to this comparison as God continues. This comparison of the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam, let me remind you, is a picture of the second Adam. Okay, The first Adam is a picture of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 describes it again. Yes, Adam's one sin, that's the first Adam, brings condemnation on everyone. That means we all pay for it. But Christ, he's the second Adam or the last Adam, but Christ's 
one act of righteousness brings a right relationship of God, a, a new life for everyone. So they're comparing Adam to Adam. First Adam, second Adam. First Adam here to Jesus. This one brought destruction. This one came and fixed it, brought life. Verse 19, because one person, that's the first Adam, disobeyed God, many became sinners. That's us. But because one other person, the second Adam, because he obeyed God, many will be made righteous. The scarlet thread begins all the way back in Genesis because Jesus was not the backup plan. He was God's plan all along. God knew. God knew. The scarlet thread. Let's move back to it. It begins here in Genesis, and it climaxes all the way at the cross. Verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain in your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Verse 17. Now here we are now, God talking to Adam again, the first Adam, and we're going to see how that represents Jesus, the second Adam. Verse 17. And to the man, that's Adam, to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, here's the result. The ground is cursed because of you. He says, Adam, you did it. You blew it. You had, now the ground is cursed. All of your life, he says, you will struggle. And some other examples of that word struggle would be to suffer. You will suffer your whole life, he says. To scratch a living from it, you're going to suffer just to make it through this life. You will suffer. Now, understand these pictures. Because if he's talking to Adam, then there's some kind of parallel, some kind of picture of Jesus. If it's here with Adam, there's a picture with Jesus. So let's find the picture. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. But Christ, who is Christ? The last Adam. We have the first Adam. But he pictures the last Adam, who is Jesus. But Christ has rescued us from the curse. Who brought the curse? The first Adam. And here, who rescued us? If he brought it, now who rescued us? The second Adam, Jesus. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. And then here's how it works out. When he was hung on the cross... He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Do you know what that means? Adam brought the curse, and Jesus took that very curse upon himself. Adam, the first Adam brought it. The second Adam took it upon himself. For it is written in scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. A picture of Jesus on the cross taking that curse upon himself. The first Adam, God said, you are going to struggle in sorrow. You will work this land the rest of your life. But do you know then what's the picture of Jesus? If God says that you're going to be in sorrow then there's got to be a picture of Jesus in that. If he's talking to Adam, 
What does the Bible say about Jesus and sorrow? Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised. This is Jesus. Despised and rejected. A man of what? Sorrows. Acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Adam was a man of sorrows. Let's go to verse 18. It will grow, talking about the land, and the land is cursed because of Adam. So it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. Those thorns represented the cursed ground. Now there's got to be a picture of Jesus in here somewhere. And it would be those thorns representing that curse that would be wrapped into a crown, a crown of thorns, a crown of curse, and placed upon the head of Jesus, and he would carry that curse, your curse and my curse, the curse that the first Adam brought, Jesus would carry that on his very head, his very life. He was carrying our curse. And then it says in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat. And we have a picture of Jesus there as well, because it was from the sweat of his brow, the night before he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. It was when he was on his face, on his knees, talking to God. The Bible says his sweat from his brow, his sweat was like what? Drops of blood. Do you see? God is telling us that in the life of Adam, we see a picture of how Jesus, image for image, is going to come and fix what Adam messed up. All the way back in in Genesis, we see Jesus, a picture of what is to come. He goes on to say, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. In other words, Adam, you're going to die. You will die. And it was by the death of Jesus that he would fix all of this. So Jesus, the second Adam, he would die too. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And the Bible talks in, in Psalm, I'm not going to go there, but the Bible talks how Je- the uh, prophetic words of Jesus, how Jesus said, you're, you're, I'm, I'm going to die, and you're going to lay my body in the dust. And that's exactly what God was saying to Adam here. Verse 20, Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would, not, because she would be the mother of all who would live. Verse 21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. A lot of times we just kind of read through that. But we can't just read through that. Because this may be the most amazing picture of Jesus. The scarlet thread in Genesis, right here, that phrase, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins from Adam, for Adam and his wife. Coats of skin, which means it wasn't a plant. And it's not that what they did was so horrible. 
But God was teaching them something very specific. Their fig leaves were not adequate. Because God wants to give them a picture. Adam is a representation, a picture of who? Of Jesus. The second Adam, Jesus. So God needs to give us this picture. So the fig leaves weren't going to do. They didn't fit the picture. Their work, their effort didn't fit the picture. He had to show them that what you are doing to make things right is not working. And in fact, you can't, Adam and Eve, you can't make things right. And he says that to you and me as well. You can't make it right. He's saying to Adam and Eve, I'm going to have to make it right for you. I have to do it for you. I'm going to have to do this for you. What you did is not going to work. It won't work. I'm going to have to do it for you. And now, where did these animal skins come from? Did Adam and Eve just go find them, get them? No. In order to get the skins from the animal, something had to die. That animal was innocent. They had nothing to do with what Adam and Eve did. It was innocent. And God is saying, to fix what you have done, Something innocent is going to have to die. Something innocent is going to have to die. Wow. Do you see the picture that God is beginning to create here all the way in Genesis? A picture of what was going to happen in the life of Jesus. To fix your sin and my sin the sins of the world, something innocent was going to have to die. Innocent blood was going to have to be shed. And God gives them this picture later in Leviticus when he teaches them about the sacrifice. In Leviticus 17 verse 11, he tells them about the sacrifice. For the life of the body is in its blood. So I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you. In other words, he's saying it's going to take blood, innocent blood to make this work, to make it right, making you right with the Lord. And then he says, it is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. And that was the sacrificial system that God set up. And that was also a picture of what was to come. But here we find the very first sacrifice. Those other sacrifices, they did. This sacrifice, which is going to picture what is to come, God did. In this case, did Adam go and find that sacrifice for God and take care of it? No. Nope. God provided it. Listen to this. Don't miss this. God himself provided a sacrifice in this moment. And this pictures what was going to happen in the life of Jesus when there too, God himself provided. God provided himself a sacrifice for you and me. And it is pictured all the way back in Genesis. God saying to Adam and Eve, it will take innocent blood. And it's picturing the one-time sacrifice for all time that was going to happen as Jesus died on the cross. Innocent blood. God himself 
the sacrifice covering the sins of the world. God provided it himself. And what we do to make things right is never good enough, ever good enough. God is saying to you and me, you can't go to church enough. Yes, you need to go, but you can't go enough to make things right. You can't cover it yourself. You can't come up with enough ordinances or enough rules or being good enough or being a good citizen or a good neighbor or a good friend. Got to say no, only Jesus on the cross. Now listen to God's description. This blows my mind. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, now he's, he's, this is weird. I know God is talking to himself. Who is God himself? The Bible describes God as God the Father, as God the Son, Jesus, already here. We, I mean, we've been talking, he's already there. It's God's plan from the very beginning. God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father in this conversation. Then the Lord God said, look, the humans, this, those that we have created, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. We knew it was coming. It happened. Here it is. Now, what if they were to reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life? See, there were two very important trees in the garden. What if they take that fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they're going to live forever. And it's not that God didn't want you to live forever. It's that he does not want sinful now, now sinful Adam and Eve, to take that fruit from the tree of life and live eternally in a sinful condition. He said, that's not my plan. I want them to be with me forever, but I want them pure and clean and sinless. I don't want them living forever in a state of corruption and sin. But if they eat that fruit, that's what's going to happen. We can't have that. We won't allow that. Listen to verse 23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out. Now, if God sends you out, you're not getting back in. You understand? He sent him out. But listen to what God did next. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. We overlooked that, but I need to pause there for a moment. Cherubim. There are levels of angels. To describe a cherubim, they are really the top. They can be described as super angels. I'm not making this up. Super angels, cherubim. Why would God take a super angel to keep little old Adam out and away from the tree. It wouldn't take a super angel to keep Adam out. Why would God put a super angel there to keep... It wasn't for Adam. So why would he put that 
there. I, I'm not a warrior, but I'm told by people who know war that when you're doing battle, you use like combatants. You're not going to send in a man on a horse to do battle with a tank. So like versus like in force. Why would God put a cherubim, a super angel, in this spot to defend that tree? He doesn't want Adam there at the tree, but it wouldn't take a cherubim. So why a cherubim? Here's why. If like versus like, you know, the Bible talks about another cherubim, a super angel. And you know, he's described as the angel of light. Sounds a little bit like the great shining one. The Bible tells us that Lucifer is the name of the angel, the cherubim, the super angel that was actually in charge of all the other angels. He's a super angel. Cherubim. And he is wanting to take that fruit and to corrupt it. And to ruin God's plan for all of eternity. And who is there to guard that tree? But the Bible says another super angel to keep the evil one, the shining one, the angel of light, Satan, Lucifer, the evil one, the serpent, out and away. Because he would love nothing more than to ruin eternity for all of God's creation. And God won't allow it. Because that eternity is reserved for you and for me. And he's protecting it for you and for me. Wow. In Genesis, we have the picture in the very first book of the Bible, the picture of redemption through Jesus Christ for all of God's creation. It's going to be later, but it's pictured here at the very beginning. The scarlet thread woven into this book. There were two trees. Two trees. In the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of knowledge, and that tree was in the Garden of Eden. There was also a tree, a tree for the second Adam, Jesus, and he hung on that tree, the cross. There were two gardens, Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus, the Garden of Eden for the first Adam, but Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed before he walked to that tree where he would bring life. That first tree, the first Adam, that tree brought death. But Jesus Christ dying on that other tree brings you and me life. The first tree got 
Adam and Eve kicked out of paradise and Jesus dying on the other tree opens paradise to you and to me. Our bottom line says this, Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. Knowing that his creation would rebel against him, he began to weave the scarlet thread, the scarlet thread of Jesus from the beginning of time. And here's what I'm asking you today. And then we're going to sing three songs and then we're done. Here's what I'm asking you. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again. He walked out of that tomb, his heart beating again. And that's what we celebrate today. And that's what we at Stuttgart Harvest Church celebrate every single Sunday. Because he loves you, he suffered and died. Because he wants to live with you and me forever, that's why he rose again and walked out of the tomb. And here's what I'm asking you to do today is this, to number one, admit that you have tried to be good that you have tried to cover up what you have done wrong and it hasn't worked. And then I'm asking you, will you believe that Jesus really did die for you? Will you believe that he rose again and walked out of that tomb three days later as history proves? And here's the last thing. Because of that, will you confess to him this life, Jesus, when you died on the cross, you bought it, and it is now yours. I give it to you. It belongs to you. I was the boss of my life. I was the king of my life, but you are. I give it to you. I am yours. I belong to you. Will you do that today? And if you will, will you write it on the back of your connection card? There's a place for you to put it. Let's pray. Jesus. You were God's plan from the very beginning of time. And you knowing that we would rebel against you, you knowing that, you began to weave the story of the scarlet thread, the story of Jesus from the very beginning of time. And it is only by the shedding of innocent blood that our sins will be covered. Thank you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.